on approach. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Teach us afresh today through it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know the significance of the phrase on approach or on final approach. We know it and we've heard it during the times when we have been on a plane and coming towards our destination. And you know what takes place when the pilot makes that announcement. We're on our approach, we're on our final approach into whatever airport. All sorts of activity starts up right at that moment. So the, the cabin crew gets to work cleaning up the cabin and you put away all of the things that you've taken out along the way. You sit back down in your seat, you get your seat buckle back fastened and, uh, and you get your tray locked and in the upright position. And I don't have all of that speech down perfectly, but I've heard it a lot of times. And so we, we know that you're to do a lot of things to get ready when you are on approach. So there are things that we experience as passengers and things that we do as passengers, but of course, behind the scenes, there's other stuff that is going on as well. The pilots, navigator, co-pilot, they're all busy doing their work. The grounds people are at work as well, and the air traffic controllers are trying to get things set up so that they can bring you safely into a landing. Some of that, we don't see exactly what is going on, but we experience it, we feel it. So, for example, when the landing gear come down, we don't see the landing gear come out of the plane, but you feel it. You feel that kind of jolt in the plane as the, the, they open up and they descend and get into the locked position. You feel and hear the flaps being extended on the wings and as you descend, perhaps you come through the clouds and you feel the turbulence and if it's a windy day, of course, you feel the plane getting pushed side to side. You feel and you hear the accelerations and decelerations as the pilot is working to get the plane in the right position to come in for the landing. And, and, and it can be smooth. It can be uneventful, as it is most of the time. And, and if you're, you're someone who's flown a lot, you might find yourself suddenly startled awake because the plane landed and you didn't realize that anything was taking place. But as you know, also, if you've flown enough times, there are times when it's dicey. There are times when because of the wind shears or some other factors that are going on, that you find yourself just praying a little bit and probably very specifically that things would go well, that this would be smooth, and that we would actually get there safely. I have been on a lot of dicey planes and a lot of dicey airports, but all of them, everybody, the air traffic controllers, the pilots, the ground crew, the crew and the plane are all working to bring you on approach and then safely to your destination. How do you approach God safely? Moses' job is to bring the people in for a safe landing at Sinai. And the question as you look at a text like this is how do you engage with God? Exodus 19 is a Latin lesson writ large in terms of our approach to God and how to do it safely. How do you get in so that you don't crash and burn in front of God? Now, there's a series of questions that I'd like to ask then about approaching God that are related to this text, but I will tell you something. As I worked my way through it, as I prepared for this sermon today, it was way more than one sermon could handle. So this is part one 
of at least a two-part sermon on exactly the same text. We'll read exactly the same text next week and reflect on it again. So if the sermon today feels a little incomplete, it's because it's incomplete. So uh, come back. How do you prepare to meet God? That's what they're doing in this passage. Verse 17 says this, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Now, these were people who had a lot of experience with God, at least a lot of recent experience with God, right? He had taken them out of Egypt in some mighty, visible, tangible ways. Besides taking them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, he had led them all the way along the way with the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. So these were people who, at least for the last several months at this point, have known much of being around God and seeing God do incredible things in their midst. And yet here, they're going to meet God. That's the description of what is taking place here at Sinai. How do you get ready for that? How do you prepare for meeting God in a way that is unique to everything that has come prior to this point? Well, the key word that is used in this text, and if you heard this in the reading, you heard it mentioned several times, the key word is consecrate or consecration. That seems to be critical with regards to our preparation. That word is a derivative of the word for holy. So it is to make the people holy as they prepare to meet with me, to sanctify, to, holy, to, to, to make them to be a holy people, to holify, that doesn't work, but in any, in any case, to sanctify the people, to set them apart so that they will be ready to meet with me. And when we read of this consecration that is necessary, you see two components of it. In the first place, you see that it is an activity that is done to them. So it is the responsibility of Moses to consecrate them. But likewise, as he does exactly that work, it becomes a responsibility for the people. It is the responsibility of the people to consecrate themselves, to get themselves ready to come and meet with God. So that's what I want to focus on right now. What does God say as it relates to this idea of consecration? And this gets really expanded throughout Exodus and throughout all of the Old Testament, but I want to focus our attention today on the particular things that are required of the people for consecration in this specific place. It appears to be comprised then of three elements, three elements with regards to consecration that they were to do. One is they were to wash their clothes. Two, there were to be limits set around the mountain, boundaries set around the mountain to which you could come up to that point but not cross over that line. And then the third element of consecration is sexual abstinence. You'll see these in just a moment. Let me look at these as a whole for just a second, and then I'll take them apart and we'll look at each one, at each element individually. What God is saying is that when you are meeting with me, when you are coming to this particular day and this particular place, you are doing something that is distinct from what you normally do. This isn't normal life. This isn't normal activity. It's not what they did most days of their lives. In fact, as far as we can tell, they've never done something like this before. And yet it was the intention of God. 
Moses, bring the people out, bring them to this mountain that they may serve me on this mountain. So this is the purpose, this is the destination, this is where we've come. But it's distinct. It's not the same thing that they do every day. And critical to understand for us as we look at a passage like this is that God is not so much herein concerned with himself, what is good for him, what makes him happy, as he is concerned for the people themselves, the people whom he loves. As one writer puts it when he's reflecting on this text and trying to make sense of what God is saying and the instructions that he's giving, God is not here to be understood or portrayed as some kind of a stuffy monarch who is just willy-nilly picking up things to say. Like, you know what, before you come to me, I want you to wash your clothes. And I want you to abstain from sexual relations for a couple of days. Or in the case of Moses, when he came to this mountain earlier in Exodus, take off your sandals. Rather, rather, what is taking place here is that this people, Israel, have, and, and, and now I'm quoting, no experience with the dimensions of divine holiness. They have no comprehension of just how, let me say this, holy and dangerous God is. They could look at this as a fairly casual situation or a fairly interesting situation. After all, all kinds of interesting things are going on up on that mountain. If you're a boy, if you're a girl, you want to look. You want, you want to see what's going on. I mean, that's exciting stuff. But they have no idea the danger that they have brought, come into because they are before this holy God. God has to protect them, therefore, from themselves, from their own ignorance, because they just don't get it. They just don't understand the way it is. And, and this is true for them. It is true for us as well. All of us, all humanity, we seem to have this tendency to think that we can approach God on our own terms, that God will be happy to receive us no matter what state, no matter what our preparation, no matter what anything is like, that we can just go ahead and go. And Moses warns the people to be careful of a casual approach to meeting God. And in particular, be careful of a casual approach to meeting God when worship is the object. And make no mistake, this is about worship. Again, it's not everyday life. This is what Israel did every day. This is how do you treat God in a context of worship, as in particular that Hebrews reading made clear for us. So God says, wash your clothes. He could have said a lot of things. Wash your clothes. And, and you kind of look at that and go, okay, is God a germaphobe? Is he, just, he just wants a cleanly people before him. Uh, you know, does God just hate stains? Is that what it is? This, this is a new tie. Uh, I wore it to Presbytery a couple of weeks ago, and I, I felt pretty sharp in my new tie. It was, it, we had chili for lunch. And, uh, and so I was sitting down at the table. I had been very careful. And as I, as I sat down and put my chili, now it's got the cord on it right now, so it's holding it back. But in normal life, it doesn't hold back. And the, the chili went down, and the tie went out and went right in the chili. 
Uh, and, and you'll be glad to know that in application of the sermon today, it's been dry cleaned since, uh, since then. The stain is pretty much out of this tie. But alas, uh, this morning after breakfast, I was trying to clean out the uh, jelly jar, uh, put it in the recycle thing. I was being a good helper. And sure enough, you know, the jelly sloshes out. And so I have jelly all over my sleeve that you cannot see right at the moment. So this says something about all of this. It really does. It says something about all of this. It says something about the futility of self-cleansing, the vanity of trying to get myself clean. It takes about six minutes from the time you get dressed or the time you take a shower to get dirty again. That's it. You've got about six minutes to meet with God. Other than that, you're coming to God dirty in one way or another. Now, I think we can look at this. We want to understand what, is, what does this mean? Why does God say wash your clothes? We can look at it and pretty quickly and appropriately understand that external washing is symbolic of the desire for God for the greater thing, the more important thing. And the more important thing is internal cleansing, spiritual cleansing. The more important thing before God than whether or not our clothes have a stain on them is whether or not our hearts are stained whether or not our conscience is clean or not. And so when we look at this, we can appropriately, through the lens of Scripture, say that that is the priority. That is what is in the foreground. or That is the main thing which is being symbolized here in the idea of wash your clothes. You can see that in the Old Testament, and you can certainly see it in the New Testament. Our uh, word of assurance after our confession today pointed just to that. This water is able to sprinkle you so that you have a clean heart and a pure conscience when you come before God through the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is clearly biblical. But it would be a mistake to see it only in this way. God is the God of our body and soul, and He has created us united as body-soul people. They are connected with each other. And thus, washing their clothes, while on the one hand you think, well, that's just kind of a surfacey thing, but washing their clothes in preparation to meet with God will help them as a whole, as a complete woman, man, child, to get ready to meet with God. It is an aid to them in their worship and approach so that they approach him with respect, with honor, internally and externally. Now, this demands a little bit more comment. I, uh, your pastor, am about to go out on a limb. I'm about to travel onto very thin ice. God does not herein dictate for any culture, any society, exactly what you should wear when you worship. There's no mention here. There's nothing about suits, nothing about robes, nothing about ties. There's nothing about sashes, belts, dresses, open-toe shoe, shoes or closed-toe shoes. There's nothing in here about any of that. So if you're looking for an exact statement of always what you should wear, you're okay. But there does seem to be a clear intention to distinguish the dress that you're going to have when you come to worship from the dress that you have, or at least the cleanliness of the dress that you have, from every other day. If you're coming to meet with God, you are doing something distinct. Sinai is about worship. 
How do you worship God? So what about us? Does it matter how you dress for worship? You and I have come together to meet God at this place on His day. Does dress make any difference to that? What we're doing here is unique. This is not just any other day of the week. This is not just any other meeting that you have. It is worship. Do the clothes matter? Do the clothes matter, especially given the fact that we are in the new covenant and Jesus has come and accomplished our cleansing? Our grandparents had a saying. The saying was this, your Sunday best. It was a little phrase that everybody understood exactly what it meant to be in your Sunday best. It was an application of passages like this, and the basic idea that when I gather with God's people to worship Him, I'm at the highlight of earthly life. I've come to the summit. There's no place else to go that's higher than this. And therefore, I give God my best. I give Him my best in every single way that I give it to Him, and one of the manifestations of that is what I'm wearing, my Sunday best. That's all well and good. It has, however, attached to it a number of dangers, and they're not pretend. One danger is to be over the top in what you wear, to be ostentatious. Peter seems to be getting at this a little bit in the book of 1 Peter when he addresses this question. Secondly, it is easy, all too easy for us men, women, children to slip into externalism to look on the outside, to have church become, in effect, a fashion show. What is this person wearing? What is that person wearing? When we recognize that God is, in fact, looking on the heart. Likewise, it is easy for this to turn into legalism, to say that everyone should wear exactly this thing in exactly this form. Skirts should be of exactly this length, no shorter. This much can be showing or not showing, and thus it is very easy in the context of legalism to slip into judgmentalism. So clothing becomes an object of judgment within the church. Pharisees were guilty of this, right? They wore good-looking clothes to worship, but they were guilty of it. And then it could lead to classism as well between the rich and the poor. Most people throughout history maybe have one, two sets of clothing. But there came a time when the rich, or all times, when the rich have very nice clothes and other people don't. And James warns about exactly this in the book of James. These are real and they are serious dangers. But we live, conversely, in a culture of casualness, of informality, of anything goes as it relates to dress. And we stand on the principle. It's our freedom. God doesn't care. We can do whatever we want to do. We can wear whatever we want to wear. I don't have to prove this to you that we live in a more casual culture than other cultures have been, but my favorite simply visual example of that is when I see videos of old baseball games. 
you know, from the, I, I don't know how late it was, but I, at least from the, the, the 30s on up, maybe through the 50s, 60s or something like that, you look at the crowd and everybody in the crowd is wearing a, a, a shirt and tie, a dress, a skirt, something like that. And it's amazing what people are wearing. I'm thinking, why aren't you sweating to death in whatever it is you're wearing out there on the field? No one would even think of that today. I mean, maybe you would think of it if you had the luxury box and you were sitting with the owner. Probably not even then. But, but we're in a casual culture. And that has come into the church. That value has entered into the church in terms of what we wear. And I'm afraid that it has entered a lot of times into the church not only in what we wear, but since we are body-soul beings, oftentimes that then gets mixed up with our approach to God. And thus our approach to God can become as informal as the way that we dress for a particular occasion. So what do you do? What should you wear? Let's hold off. Back right off, having come right up to the edge, the precipice. I'm going to back off for a moment. I want to go to the two other elements here of consecration. The second one that I mentioned, boundaries or limits. If our culture finds the idea of formality of dress to be quaint, it finds the idea of limits and boundaries, particularly limits and boundaries that are physical and set up to divide people within the context of a worship service of all things, that is positively distasteful, prejudiced, and probably bigoted as well. As the five-man electric band sang, hey man, what gives you the right? Put up a sign to keep me out when you're keeping Mother Nature in. Cultural opinions notwithstanding, here's what God says. And you shall set limits, verse 12, for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, that is shot with an arrow. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. You cross the line, you touch that mountain, you go up too far, and you're dead. Now, after the people approach, they come up to the boundary, to the appointed boundary, and God is in the process of descending. And in case you didn't catch this in the reading, it's really hard to trace Moses' own travels up and down this mountain, because he's going up and down the mountain throughout this time frame. So he, Moses goes up the mountain again, and as soon as he goes up the mountain, he's got a message from God, which is go down the mountain. And the message from God to go down the mountain is go down the mountain and tell the people not to cross the boundary line, because if they cross the boundary line, they're going to die. Did you note Moses' response to him in the text? The response of Moses is found in verse 23. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord then once again tells them, no, go down and set up the limits. You see, God seems to understand something here that Moses doesn't quite get. Moses gives the credit more people than they deserve. God seems to get it. We're the kind of people, they're the kind of people who like to push the limits. Push the boundaries. We like to say, set up that line so I can step one foot over it. 
and God gets it. And even if Moses doesn't get it, even if Moses says, wait a minute, you already told us that. Tell me something else. I got that one covered. I set it up down there. Go back down, Moses. Tell them again. Because they're going to want to come up. They're going to want to look, see. Hey, Moses went up there. Who's Moses? He's just one of us. He's a guy who's like us. If he can get up there and survive, surely we can get up there and survive. And it is interesting up there on this mountain. God is aware of our temptation as people to rush in where angels fear to tread. Everybody assumes they're okay with God. Everybody assumes God gets them. He'll be understanding. But boundaries are needed. And boundaries are needed. This is odd to even say it because the very context in which we're reading about the boundaries is a context at which the people are being brought to meet God. If you're being brought to meet someone, it seems odd, does it not, that you would then set up a boundary to limit the very meeting. And yet, that's what we have here. A boundary is established in the context of a meeting. Moses can go up, he can ascend to the top, but you can't. We can't. A tiered system is being set up. We'll see it develop a little bit more as this and other passages go along, where you've got the top, you've got the middle, and you've got the base of the mountain. A tiered system of access, and that is the exact same thing that we will see later in Exodus with the development of the tabernacle, and then, of course, we'll see it again with the temple a portion of which has access for many, and then access for a few, and then only one access point for anybody else. So if the, if the tabernacle is a, is a rectangle in shape, and the mountain is, just take the tabernacle or the temple and stand it on its end, and you've got exactly what the mountain is, okay? The same principles are at work in both things. A tiered system where the Holy of Holies is at the top, and Moses alone can go up and be in that particular place. There are a multitude of lessons that can be drawn from that to our, uh, I think, particularly important today. The first is this lesson, namely, that God is holy and He is other. And as that relates to mankind, we are creatures and we are sinful. So the very fact that God is the creator and we are the creature means that there are boundaries, there are distinctions, there are differences between us and God. That is compounded by the fact that we are sinners and God is completely holy. And there is a distinction, a separateness, a gulf that exists because in particular of our sinfulness. And it must be, that separation must be acknowledged and it must be appreciated before that separation can be overcome. You have to understand it before it can be dealt with. And the second is a lesson then in the ministry, in the idea of mediated access to God. Mediated access for sinful humanity. Someone must stand protection between us and God. And someone must function as a go-between in order to communicate to sinful humanity the will of God, the desire 
of God. And here, of course, it is Moses. And, and now I'm just going to do a summary of all the rest of the Bible and the rest of the Pentateuch. What's going to become clear is that Moses himself is inadequate to the task. He is not up for the job. And thus, there is the need for a greater mediator to go between us and God, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Even you and I do not have direct access to God the Father. We can assume that we have direct access to God the Father. We do not. We have mediated access to God the Father. And the mediator is Jesus Christ who invites us up and in. So let's come up further into the presence of my Father. So in consecration, you've got washing, you've got boundaries, and then finally, you've got sexual abstinence. Verse 15. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Let me be clear. This is not a statement that God is against sexuality or that sexual relations between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife are somehow dirty. Quite the opposite. And if you'd have been in Sunday school, not today, but last week, you would have heard this in more detail than I'm going to give it right now. But he created sexuality as an expression of the covenantal union that exists between a man and a woman, an expression of that that is both delightful, pleasurable, and wonderfully mysterious. And if you understand it as such, you understand then the prohibition, because what is taking place here is the making of a covenant. God is entering into covenant with his people in this context of worship. And what is essential is that God says, listen, have no other gods before me. Nothing comes before your relationship with me. Human sexuality is a wonderful gift. But it has behind it the relationship between the husband and wife, something else, namely the relationship that exists within the trinity of love. And then in particular, as that love relationship of the Trinity is extended to the people whom God is calling out of the world. And so what God is saying in effect right now is, listen, you've got something wonderful that is a gift for me that symbolizes covenantal love and fidelity. Put that on hold because what I want you to do is covenant with me and I want there to be nothing between us. Only the man that I've appointed. It's not that it's a bad thing, it's a good thing. But we've come, they've come to the reality. The reality is God loves his people and wants to dwell with his people and therefore abstain, refrain from this gift of mine. And so as with any fast, as with anything that we give up, effectively what we have here is a statement that says, God I want you more than any good gift that you have given or more than any sinful practice that I've developed in my life. I am putting this aside, put this aside, it's a good thing, but say to the Lord through your fast, I want you. I want you more than the gift that you have provided to me. And bring this to a conclusion for today. You and I are on approach to God. You're here. We are in worship right now. Every week, you're on approach to worship. 
Jesus has opened up the way. Jesus has washed us. Jesus has clothed us so that we can come to this place. Like Israel, the call for our part, that's what he's done, the call for our part is to get ready to worship God. Do we have to literally fulfill these things? No. We do not have to literally fulfill these things. Jesus has made the way for us. But what we do is we sort through the principles that are herein contained, and we ask the question, God, what do you want from me? What do you want from us as a worshiping people who are supposed to prepare and get ready for worshiping you? Because the reality is, this God who is here represented is the same God in Hebrews chapter 12 who is a consuming fire and who says, I want you to worship me with reverence and with awe. And I want you to think about that holistically in every way. Come before me and worship me in that way. The purpose of the intercessory work of our high priest, Jesus Christ, was not to create for us a casual, careless, anything-goes approach to God. That was not the point. If you think that was the point, if that's the trajectory of your application and it then applies to worship that I can come casually, you missed the point. And you missed the point of Hebrews chapter 12 as well. Conversely, the greater access that has been purchased for us by Jesus Christ yields for us greater responsibility for preparation and consecration, not less responsibility because you and I have come to a better mountain, a higher mountain, where angels and cherubim are gathered together in festal gathering, worshiping the consuming fire. Wood that it were the case that the only requirement that you and I had for worship was to get clean clothes out, don't cross some line, and abstain from sexuality for a day or two. Would that it were that easy. Brothers and sisters, it is not. The call that God has given to us, the people of God in the new covenant, is far greater than three little things that they did for consecration. It is for us to be a people who, when we gather together, have reflected on our own hearts and asked the question, what is the state of my heart before you? Have reflected on the relationships that we have, the relationships that we have within our households, relationships with people in the church and others, and say, are those in good order as I come into worship? To reflect on the conduct of our lives, and to acknowledge the sin as we come into the presence of God. And it is a call as well to consider every part of our being, to consider what I am wearing, because in every culture there is something that communicates reverence and respect with reference to what you're wearing. Anything doesn't go with God and ties are not required. 
You figure it out between there. But it's your job as well to look at your schedules, your routines, your planning. All of those things have to be considered with reference to this particular day, this particular hour, so that you take it with all seriousness. It is the most serious thing that we do and the most joyful. We're meeting God. We have to take our preparation for it seriously. My clothes for today were laid out at 5 o'clock yesterday. Put in a closet so they wouldn't get dirty. Now, I'm a pastor. I get it. You don't have to lay yours out at 5 o'clock on Saturday. But mine are. This morning, I got up way, way earlier than that alarm was set for. Way early on Sunday mornings. I tell you what, I was tempted this morning. I like Grand Slam tennis. And Djokovic and Murray were playing, started at 3.30 this morning. And at about 7.30, I was like, what's the score? What's going on? And I saw it. I saw it. I thought, no, this is bad preparation. This is not good preparation for worship. Do not watch Djokovic and Murray as much as you want to watch Djokovic and Murray right now. Set it aside because something far greater is happening on this day when you and I gather for worship. The requirements are higher. The good news is that the grace is greater. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power that He has given to you, the indwelling of His Spirit in us and in you, such that you are the temple, make it possible to enter into His presence with joy and with gladness. Amen. P.S. Boys, young men, listen up. Listen up. I get it. I get it. The pastor just stood up here and told you that worship is the greatest thing that we can do on earth, that this hour is the greatest thing you can do on earth, and it doesn't feel like that to you, does it? I get it. I was a kid. I was the worst in my church and in my Sunday school classes. I know I've said it to you before. I'll just keep saying it until you believe it. I couldn't sit still either. And if you wanted me to dress up to go to wor worship, we were having war. My mom died early, probably as a result of the fights around going to worship. I get it. I understand it. It'll take some time. It'll take some time for you to see what an anchor this hour is for the rest of your life. Do not diminish it. Fight. Fight for it. Fight for this time. Now, you probably think as well, you know what, Pastor? Sinai sounds a lot more exciting to me than sitting in a pew for an hour, hour and a half. There was kind of a lot to see there at Sinai, a lot to feel, a lot to experience. Listen, this place is peaceful because Jesus Christ has come. You think Sinai would be cool? It would kill us. 
Jesus has come. We're here in peace because Jesus has come. Fight for it. Fight for it. I know it. 